This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. For you have heard of my previous, this is the Apostle Paul writing. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now these two verses from Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that in it you show us who you are, and thus you show us who we are in you. I pray in these moments that your spirit would move, that we would see the power of the gospel for us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When we first meet the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, when we first meet him in Scripture, he is like a cross between a religious terrorist and a policeman. He's been deputized to go out and stop this new Christian movement. In fact, the very first time we see Paul in the book of Acts, he is kind of like overseeing the lynching of the first Christian martyr. The first person to die for their faith after the resurrection of Jesus, Stephen. We meet him there, and he writes about this time in his life a couple of times. In Galatians and Philippians, and and we just read a little bit about it. Two verses here from Galatians chapter 1. And what he describes in that time in his life is not a man whose conscience was troubled. It's not like Paul was going out and being this religious terrorist slash policeman and he was really bothered at night when he would go to sleep. No, in fact, what he describes is a man who very much believed in what he was doing. He was not somebody that had this sense that he was failing. In fact, you may have noticed it when he talked about it. He was excelling. He was excelling in competition against his peers. Paul was the best, the best of the best, at least in his own mind. He was doing what he was supposed to do, at least he thought so. And he loved his heritage. He was passionate about his religion. And he dove all the way in to the point that when Christians started saying that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that Paul hoped for, they had to be stopped. As he said, and we just read, I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. So how do we explain how he went from one of the church's most dedicated enemies to the person who wrote Galatians 2? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. How do we explain that? Because God had given him a new heart. God had given him a new heart. And that's what we're talking about this morning, because God doesn't just do that for Paul. He does that for us as well. I'm going to break this up into a couple of sections, as I always do. And the first one's this, a question. What is your center? What is your center? If you had gone back in time, if you could get in a DeLorean and go back in time before Paul had met and found the grace of Jesus, and you asked him, what is your center? 
What makes your heart beat? What's your confidence? Why do you have value? What's your heart? Paul would have answered a couple of different things. It's what he said in Galatians 1. He would have said, my heart, my center, what makes me a person of worth and value is my religious performance. Did you notice? He said, uh, in, in my previous way of life, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many other people in my age group. He defined himself by moral perfection. In his mind, his religion was a list of things to do. And Paul said, I did them. I did those things. That was his value, his religious performance. He would have also said his heritage. He had a very proud heritage. He defined himself by his family tree and by his background. He came from this illustrious genealogy. He was the guy that was going to like print out his Ancestry.com tree and show it to you. Source of pride. He would also say his actions against those he disagrees with. So he was defining himself by opposition to his enemies. He was, a, he was right in his mind. He was right. And they were wrong. And I define myself by being against those who are wrong. And he also would have said competition. Defining himself by outperforming his peers. So not just opposition to enemies, but his peers, his friends. He's, he's one up in them. I'm advancing beyond them. Now, the thing that all those have in common, religious performance, heritage or background, actions against others, competition with peers, the thing that all those have in common is they were, Paul, finding his worth, his center, his heart in himself. Those are all things Paul does or is. He was, finding, he was making something of himself by doing, by acting, by performing. Now, our world tends to find its worth in a lot of the same places. I just listed them. Religious performance, competition, opposition to others, heritage. Right? But none of those can lead to thriving. And that's the truth. None of those can be a heart that leads us to thriving. They can't be our heart. They can't be where we build who we are. Like take religious performance, for instance. If we try to build our identity and our worth and say, this is who I am, this is my heart, on religious performance, what happens when you mess up? Because you, you will. If that's the whole thing, if you put all your chips in on that and you mess up, you lose the bet. Or if you've got a religion where it's like, maybe it's not moral perfection, but I have a priest I can go to, and that's my connection, and that's my guarantee. What if your priest mess, messes up? What if he does the, the ritual wrongly, and you don't even know it? We can't find our confidence in religious performance. What about heritage? You know, one of the things that has popped up a lot since Ancestry.com, and especially the DNA tests, have come about is people are discovering family secrets. There are so many support groups. You can find them on Facebook. There are support groups from people who paid that $99 to get the DNA test at Christmas and they get the results back and suddenly they find out like their dad's not their dad. Or they start digging around and they, they feel such pride in their family but then they discover some really, really ugly things about their great-grandfather. If you've put all your chips in on your background, your heritage, your family tree, 
and suddenly your ancestors turn out to be very different people than you think, or if you find out you have an impure bloodline and that's where you've put all your chips, that's a problem. Or what about actions against those you disagree with? What if you have people that you're enemy? Like, I, I am defining myself by being right, and those people are wrong. What if you go too far? What if you go too far and you wind up doing wrong and justifying it in your mind because you're in the right? Can't put your chips in there. Or competition. If you're defining yourself in competition, what if suddenly you become unable to compete? If you're going to the gym every day and you're chiseling out this perfect body, what if suddenly you get hurt in a car crash? And your entire identity is built on being this pristine whatever. I'm not that. I've just heard about gyms. I don't actually go inside them. Um, <laughs> I've driven past the Planet Fitness. Um, anyway, but what if you lose your ability to compete? Like That's just one area. You know, I don't want to pick on him because he's one of my favorite, probably my favorite basketball player of all time, but the cautionary tale of a Michael Jordan in front of you. This man is the dominant basketball player, the best of all time. But if you talk to people that know him over the years, and if you have paid attention to his life after the fact, he has become eat up with the fact that he, his body no longer can do what it used to. He's not the best anymore. And his life has, in a lot of ways, been in shambles. Um, so in the long run, those things, religious performance, heritage, actions against enemies, competition with peers, those are unlivable. They're a dead-end street. We can't put those at the center of who we are because they can't bear that weight. We have to find a new center. We have to be given a new heart. Paul says this dramatically in Galatians 2 when he speaks about being crucified with Christ. That's a, that's a, 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 a drastic way of saying it. He doesn't just say, I died with Christ. Crucifixion was this shameful exposing. It was uh, this means of execution in the Roman government that was supposed to like progressively dehumanize the person. But Paul says here that I have been crucified with Christ. And what he's saying is for him to find true life, something, a center, a heart that can bear the weight of who he is, that those things that he trusted in before had to be put to death. In fact, he's saying a little bit more than that. Those things that he had trusted in before had actually, in Jesus, been judged and found wanting. This is what I mean. What had all of those things done when the Son of God put on flesh and became one of us? The light of the world came into this darkness. The most religious people who had the best heritage, the people who excelled above everybody else and had that power, they put Jesus to death. The folks who had the best heritage, the folks who had the best religious record, the folks who had excelled in competition and, and had excelled in opposing enemies, they put Jesus to death. And that unjust execution of Jesus became the thing that revealed the dead end that all of those are. 
depending on religious performance or heritage or competition or anything in our own power cannot bring life. It can only bring death. That's true then. It's true now. Depending on ourselves for our worth, for our motivation, is a dead-end street. We have to see all of those things like Paul, as dead to us, as crucified with Christ. Because if we don't, they will only wear us out. Because they're unable to deliver what they promise. That brings me to my next section. Recentering with a new heart. If that's all Paul said, it was kind of sound, sound very dire, right? I'm crucified with Christ and all those things I put my trust in and this world is kind of built on. They can't lead to life. That's very uh, pessimistic. But that's not all he says. Because if he's crucified with Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus is not the end of the story, right? What followed crucifixion? Resurrection, new life. And if that Paul who was depending on his own power to live had been crucified with Christ, it means that that was not the end for him either. He actually writes about this in the book of Romans, chapter 6. He says, We were buried with him, with Jesus, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. God is a God who brings life to dead places, and that's exactly what He does for us. He doesn't just expose these false centers. He calls us to life, and He gives us a new heart. So that we can say with Paul, I no longer live... The me who would depend on religious performance or heritage or competition or whatever, that no longer lives. But Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith. Not by performance. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What had happened is a new Paul had been born. A new Paul had been born. He doesn't have to hustle to find his motivation. He doesn't have to look at himself to get the power to live. He can look to Jesus and his grace, which is sufficient for every need. That's the new center. That's the new heart. The love of Jesus for Paul. And Paul loves Jesus. Of course Paul loves Jesus. But notice he says he lives by the love of Jesus for him. That's the root no longer is Paul looking to find his motivation inward and looking inward to find his way to thrive. He can look at the intentions of Jesus, who is always the same, who never changes. He can look to the actions of Jesus, not his own actions, and this, Jesus, him, can bear the weight of identity. And this is livable in the long term. In other places, Paul talks about being dead in sin. How apart from God's grace, we are fundamentally at odds with God. And that salvation is God moving first, regenerating our dead hearts to be awakened to Him. God doing this is the only hope we have to hear Him call us into His grace. And that's the point here. That we've been given new hearts and that God is transforming every part of us. God is transforming every part of us. And He is making Jesus and His love our motive and our way to thrive. He is bringing us new life. We don't have to go out and find it. We don't have to perform to get access to it. We live by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave Himself for us. 
He's bringing us new life. He is giving us new hearts that are awakened to the reality that my motivation and my pathway for thriving in life is the love of God for me, proven in Jesus, and that alone. And that brings me to my last section, the danger of Jesus plus. After you receive Jesus by faith, I spoke about this at the beginning, we can talk about the gospel as the message that people out there need to believe. And once you believe the gospel, then you move on, right? And growth in the Christian life is going to be something else. Like you had faith in Jesus Christ, but to now really become a mature Christian, you need to have your 45-minute quiet time in the morning every morning. Now, reading the Bible, praying, having a quiet time is a fantastic thing. Something like that. Or you need Jesus, but growth now was going to be giving... Um, 10, not 10, 11% of your income. And you need to meticulously figure this out. Get the spreadsheet out and figure it out. Giving is a wonderful thing, of course. But what is your greatest need after you have believed the gospel is true? What is the greatest need for the rest of your life? How do we grow? Our greatest need after we believe the gospel is the gospel. Our greatest need after we have been found by the grace of Jesus is the grace of Jesus. We do not move on. We grow in that, sure, but we never move on to something else. It, it is not, I need Jesus plus for the rest of my life to live perfectly. Sin is the worst thing in the world. This is not a license to go out and do whatever to anybody. But your greatest need is not, I need Jesus plus my motivation and my power pursuing a morally perfect life. You need Jesus. It is not Jesus plus finding the right spouse or having the two and a half kids. I don't know how you have a half kid. Um, that's a statistic, you know, parents and two and a half kids. It, it, it's not that. It is not Jesus plus home ownership or Jesus plus becoming debt free. I could keep going. It is not Jesus plus anything. It is not Jesus plus trying to motivate myself by guilt at what I've done in my past or shame that I'm not somebody else yet. No, your greatest need for you and your whole life, whether you're a new Christian or someone who has had faith their entire life, is the gospel. We do not move on to something else. We do not move on from the love of Jesus to anything else for our motivation or anything else as our pathway for thriving. Our greatest need, day in, day out, and this is true now and will be into eternity, is the grace of God. That's true. Our greatest need is to come back to this well and drink again and again and again. And that means... That the most dangerous temptation for us as Christians, the most dangerous temptation for us as Christians, is to think that we need something other than Jesus to keep us going down the road. To think that we need to add something else to Him to make ourselves whole. That danger of Jesus plus. The real danger of Jesus plus is that whatever we add to that equation, Jesus plus this equals me being whole, is we will inevitably, inevitably actually put our hope in whatever that plus is. Jesus plus this thing will make me whole. We will inevitably actually put our hope in whatever that plus is. 
If I try to trust in Jesus plus my own ability to become a good man, then I will take my eyes off of him and the sufficiency of his grace, and I will put my eyes on myself. And that's not good at all. Jesus plus is always a subtraction. That's actually what Paul is talking about in the, in the larger context of Galatians 2. We just read those two verses. But he is writing those verses in the midst of this uh, crisis that had absolutely rocked the early church. Here's what had happened. The church was growing. And it was crossing these cultural boundaries. Now Jesus was a Jewish man. And all of those initial disciples were Jewish people. And he was the Jewish Messiah. And as the gospel was growing out and the church was growing and the new churches were being planted in places where there weren't a lot of Jewish folks, people who had no Jewish background whatsoever were coming to faith in Jesus. And suddenly the church looked a whole lot different. A whole lot different. And these people who had no background in, in Old Testament understanding or culture or what it meant to be culturally Jewish, they're coming into the church and it's a... It became a problem. And as this number of non-Jewish Christians continued to grow, some of the Jewish Christians got very concerned. They said, well, how they, these folks don't know any of what we now call the Old Testament. They don't know Scripture at all. How do we disciple them? How do we teach them what it means to mature and grow? And so they started saying and insisting that if somebody really, really wanted to follow Jesus, like really believed it, that they needed faith in Jesus plus becoming culturally Jewish. And so they were telling every Gentile male that's coming into the church, you need to be circumcised. All Jewish boys are circumcised on the eighth day after they're born. Now you need to be circumcised, and if you don't, then you really don't have faith in Jesus. You need faith in Jesus plus, plus this cultural taking on of, of Jewishness. And to insist on this, one of the ways they insisted on this is they started eating separately. Which a lot of the early church worship services happened around meals, around tables. And so essentially they were like, it was like if I put a partition here in the very middle of this room and said the only people that can sit on this side, I'm trying to think of something off the top of my head. The only, if you have tattoos, you have to sit over here. If you don't have tattoos, you can sit over here. Because, like, you're, you're pretty good. You're good to go. I just, that's probably not a good illustration. But it would be like that. That's essentially what they were doing. They were creating an A team and a B team. A varsity and a JV. And super real Christians. The ones that really believed in Jesus. They were also going to become culturally Jewish. And if you didn't, you weren't, you weren't the A team. I say A team, I think Mr. T. Um, sorry. <laughs> but, you know, you weren't really up to their level. To be fully accepted, to be seen as having worth in other people's eyes was to have faith in Jesus plus something else. And as Paul says in verse 21, insisting on that is setting aside the grace of God. That's pushing the grace of God to the side. Or as he says in the first chapter of Galatians, that is a different gospel. It is a different gospel. You know, part of the reason that this Jesus Plus, I think, is so powerful 
in our hearts and can be such a great temptation is that a lot of times Jesus plus is what will gain us acceptance with others. That's why it's so powerful. Not necessarily that we think that God may want that from us, but that we know if I have faith in Jesus plus this thing, then I will be accepted. Then I will be welcomed in. You know, it, you can see that in things like a, a, going to a church that insists that you wear your quote-unquote Sunday best. Every man has a suit and every woman has a nice dress on and heels. And, and if you want true acceptance, then you've got to dress that way. Now, you're not going to run into too many people in eastern North Carolina that tell you you need Jesus plus becoming culturally Jewish. Like You're probably never going to have that conversation in your life. But what you will run into in eastern North Carolina is people telling you, and they might not even say it explicitly, they might not even realize what they're saying, that you need faith in Jesus plus religious performance to be made whole. Um, and hear me out. Things like church attendance is a great thing. Making it to worship. When we have Bible studies, coming to Bible studies. Those things are good. Praying every day is a wonderful thing. Reading and learning scripture is a wonderful thing. But if we think of those things as areas to perform to make God more happy or to make other people more happy with us, that's wrong. They have to spill out from a worthiness in Jesus. People in eastern North Carolina may tell you you need faith in Jesus plus a certain ancestry or certain background. And that's the reason, uh, truthfully, that's the reason why even today we have what we call white churches and black churches. It's because hundreds of years ago, white people were telling white people that you cannot be in our church. You can't even worship here. You have faith in Jesus, sure. But what you really need to be part of our community, to be fully accepted, is Jesus plus being white. You will find in North Carolina people telling you, you need Jesus plus actions against those you disagree with. And you will find people telling you, you need Jesus plus competition with other people. A lot of times that's what denominations are. And we're a Presbyterian church. I'm ordained by the Presbyterian church in America. But if I stood at that door and as people are coming in and said, do you have faith in Jesus plus membership in another Presbyterian church in America congregation? That'd be exactly what this is. But we define ourselves in competition to each other. How many times will Presbyterians crack jokes about Baptists? Or Baptists crack jokes about Pentecostals? Or Pentecostals crack jokes about Methodists? I could keep going. The good news of the gospel for the found, for those of us who have already believed in Jesus, is not Jesus and His grace plus me doing something. Never ever, ever. The way for the way of maturity and growth for us is further into the grace of God. It's resting on Jesus and Jesus alone more and more. To the point, like, I, I didn't even write this down, but I, I'm thinking about it. The Apostle Paul, he wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, and the earliest time he's referring to himself, he speaks about himself as the least of the apostles. Now, that's humility, but that's pretty high up there. Like the apostles were the emissaries, the spokespeople of Jesus. That's like saying, 
I'm the worst player on this NBA team. Like, you are still a professional basketball player. <laughs> Later on in his letters, he says that I'm least of the, uh, the brethren. I'm the least of the Christians. And in the latest, the second to the last letter he ever wrote that we have in the New Testament, he said, I am the worst sinner. I am the chief of sinners. The worst one I know. For him, that was maturity. That was not Paul adding things to a resume to hand to somebody. It was Paul, I believe, growing in his understanding that maturing in the Christian life is learning to lean on Jesus more and more. So friends, no Jesus plus. None of it. If you were to live the rest of your life without sinning one time, the root of who you are, the heart, the center is Jesus and Jesus alone. We never, ever, ever move on. And from that heart, that new heart, we grow in grace. We mature in grace. Not adding something to the love of Jesus to make us whole, but becoming more and more dependent upon His grace. It's like the fruit of a tree. You look at a tree and you see its fruit. But that fruit is produced from what? A healthy root. A lot of times in the Christian life, it's easy for us to treat, um, to get the fruit and the root mixed up, in a sense. The root of who we are is always God's grace. The fruit of us growing in good deeds and maturing in our faith, those are wonderful things. But they never produce themselves. They spring from the root of God's grace. That fruit is not the root of it's growth from the root. So hear me, there's no A team, there's no B team in the kingdom of God, there's no varsity or JV. That's, for lack of a better word, that's trash. That has no place in the church. Hear the good news. God gives you a new heart and He is growing you by His grace. For those of us in here who are single, you don't need a partner to make you whole. I know so much of church culture can make you feel like you're an afterthought, like the goal in front of you should be to find a husband or wife, but you don't need Jesus plus anything to make you whole. If you're married in here, your spouse cannot bear the weight of your identity, and neither can your performance as a good or bad husband or wife. Now, love your spouse well, of course, but you don't need the affirmation of that spouse to make you whole. If you're married and longing for children, you don't need children to make you whole. If you are parents, you don't need Jesus plus being a perfect parent to make you whole. I know you feel like you need to say yes to everything to try and give your ch children every possible experience. Maybe that you feel like you need to burn the candle at both ends to make them happy, but you don't need Jesus plus anything to make you whole. Kids, you guys don't need straight A's. Get straight A's. I'm sorry, I just made your parents mad. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, I did not. I did not. But you know what? If you get a B, if you get a C, you get a D. You don't have to be the best at everything you do. You don't have to be the best person on every sports team you play on. You don't have to be the best and smartest in class to be whole. All you need is Jesus. All you need is Jesus. The rest may come. The rest may not come. But you don't need that 
to be whole. For all of us this morning, know the danger of Jesus plus, but do not fear. Because you have found a Jesus who adores you, who loves you, and gave himself for you. Let's live in him together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. I say that so often that it feels past. It feels cliche almost. Um, but no, thank you, thank you that that I that, that that in Christ I have entered and we have entered into an existence where your love is our all, where you have given us a hope that in this world of darkness, that this uh, the things that uh, tend to matter here, the things we can't measure up on that you've given us a pathway for a different life, that you are giving us a new heart, that you are transforming us in all of who we are, and you are pointing us toward you, toward an existence in eternity, far longer than our, our difficult lives here, where our all, where everything is your love, where our whole life will be the opening of vistas in front of us, where we will be amazed and awed at the ways you love us, and you show us that you love us. So make your love for us the very center of who we are. Not just a thing to be believed one time, but the very heart of who we are forever. Teach us, Lord, what it means to look to you every day in everything and to find our worthiness, our hope, our motivation, and our source of thriving in you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.